So I was over there fine-tuning, listening, worshiping, and trying to think of a, a message title because I don't usually have one. Um, and I really couldn't come up with one. But if I had been able to come up with one, I probably would have called it like the disruption, right? The disruption. Yeah, the disruption. Um, and then during worship, it's like, maybe I should just change it to the supremacy of Christ. And that should just be the title of every message ever preached in church, period, right? Like in worship, just like the only thought in me was like, man, that just that concept, that title, all the historical significance to that specific statement and its deep truth, just like every message could just be about the supremacy of Christ. <clears throat> and for me, that's kind of where this tied into, although you guys might be like, what does this have to do with the supremacy of Christ? And hopefully we'll tie it together at the end. Hi. <laughs> no problem. Um, so I broke up this message into two categories, just really quickly. One called the vision, the other one called the disruption, leading from one to the other. Um, and I want to start by asking some questions. Do not think theologically deeply through these questions. I just want your quick answers, right? From either side. Someone with the mic over there, if someone just has a quick answer, just be willing to just put it in their face and make them talk, okay? You Here's the question. It. What is the value of the church? Anybody? Value of the church. Oh, you have to say it out loud, though. Love. Representation of Christ. Good job, intern. Keep going, keep going. What is that? Adorn the gospel. What? Adorn the gospel. Adorn the gospel. Bringing people close to God. Again, the value of the church. What is it to you? Accountability. Instruction. Family. Moral benchmark. Fellowship. What did you say from the other side? Evangelism. Evangelism. Okay. Good. No raising your hand. Demonstration of the truth. Oh, what? What'd you say? Lampstand. No, no. What is the value of the church? Yeah, that was the question. Christ's blood. Right. So, so many things. Like, we could just, like, we could play the word game and associate everything because everything comes down to the supremacy of Christ. <laughs> but the value of the church, right? And this isn't, it's not a, a trap game. It's not a word association game. It's just saying, like, just hear what everyone said. Everyone has different pictures and ideas of the church. Um, and you'll find that most people, at least what is being put out there, your initial thought is uh, of singular perspective, um, individual perspective, right? A couple of them out there were maybe had the broader picture in mind, but it's usually what's the value of the church to me? That's how we associate that question. So I just said, what is the value of the church? And we just immediately interpret it as what is the value of the church to me or to others? And that is not a wrong thing. It's just a partial thing. And it's the partial part that we tend to really hyper-focus on to the neglecting of the other part, which actually is the end of the game. Right? There's a means to an end, and the church does have immense value to an individual, to us, to myself. But the biblical perspective is, what value do you have to the church? Right? That's the idea. It's not about you. It's about the church. 
And you're like, it's not about the church, it's about Jesus. And I'm saying we've preached a thousand times to show you that literally the church is Christ. That is, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that, that church is Christ as community. Not Christ like community, not Christ in community, but Christ as community. Meaning expression, it's him, right? The Bible says the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Christ, right? And the Bible says the church is the fullness of Christ on the earth. It is what he left when he left, right? And he sent the Holy Spirit so that the church would then do all the same things he did and more. That was his point. I must leave so the whole world can see me. And the whole world will see him through him as community, as the church. The centrality of the church is the message of the New Testament when you watch it. And it's not, there's no comparison. There's no contrast between Jesus and the church. That's the point. The message is clear. This was Jesus' mission. And this is how Jesus will be seen by the world, through the church. How will they know that you belong to Christ? The Bible tells us, right? Like, what should we be doing as Christians? Literally being the indwelling of Christ within us, expressed. Like, everything is about Christ being seen. All of it. So I don't want you to to feel that contrast if you've not been around for all the times we've kind of done such strong, exegetical work for Christ as the church. But the vision is the, the fact that the church is... Central, And so when we say what is the vision and the value of the church from Jesus' perspective for us and the world, it's this. It is intended, and guys, this isn't hyperbole, it is intended to change the world. It is intended to be continuously changing the world until Christ comes to receive his reward. That's the value of the church, to change the world. John Wesley once said this. He said, the church does not change the world by making converts, but by making disciples. Right? But do you see, like, just his perspective there? He didn't say, hey, you know what the value of the church is? It's not to make converts, it's to make disciples. His vision of the church, his perspective of the church was, hey, guys, we're trying to change the world. But listen, the church won't change the world. And it doesn't change the world by making converts. It does it by making, see, his expectation was that the church will change the world. That's the realm John Wesley thought on. That's the realm that people who are moving and and living and breathing in the things of God, they understand this vision for what's happening, what we're here for. To change the world. That's the vision. Does anyone disagree with the thought just right now, right? We're not going to debate. I'm not going to respond to you at all. I just want to know, show of hands. Does anyone disagree that, that the church is intended to change the world? The whole world, not just our corner of the world, but just the whole world. Let me know if anyone's raising their hand on the other side. Oh, wait. I don't see any hands. Okay, cool. So we're all in agreement, right? We're all in agreement that the church is intended to change the world. And that the church changes the world by obeying Christ. And Christ gave us a great commission to obey. 
And we're going to talk about that, right? But right now, I want to make sure that we're on the same page for the vision. That we have a vision for the church. You know why? If we don't have a clear, biblical vision for the church, we won't do it. We won't do it. There's a scripture in Proverbs. Proverbs Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29, 18 says this. It says that without vision, people cast off restraint and they do their own thing. And the context kind of flows. You know Proverbs. It's, just, it's, it's the ADHD of the scriptures, right? It's just, it can't, it can't keep a single train of thought. It's just boom, 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 boom. Um, but right there, there's actually two thoughts in a row in the same theme. So it's impressive. Uh, and it says, where there is no vision, people cast off restraint and do their own thing. What does that mean when you think about it? Without vision, you cast off restraint. It's almost like we think uh, we, people will see restraint as a negative thing. But it's not. I wrote, down, I wrote down here, I said, embrace the restraint that brings true life and abundant life. Right? The restraint of the scriptures, the restraint of the will of God, the restraint of the true and good life comes from the scriptures. David sings whole psalms. Matter of fact, the longest book in the Bible, the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is an entire, like, acrostic song about how much David loves the law of the Lord and the word of the Lord and the restraint of the, of the word. Like, this is his, his theme. He loves it. He loves the life it brings and the restraint that it brings. So, the point is this. Embrace the restraint. But without vision, you won't. You'll cast it off and you'll just do your own thing. You'll have your own understanding of how it should go. You'll have your own life goals and you'll live according to them. You'll have your own desires and you'll live according to them. You'll have your own little idols that you don't really know are idols. You just think they're values. And you'll live according to them. Because you don't have the restraint of the biblical vision for who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. And when we grow up and when we live from a place of thinking church is just one thing we do as Christians, then you live according to your own ways. And you live according to your own understanding, your own interpretations. But if you take the vision that God has given us for the church and the idea that it's central, not you, and that you're here to serve the purposes of Christ and his church, not the other way around, then we start answering the question of what is the value of the church a little bit differently. It comes just from a different perspective. What is the value of the church? The value of the church is to change the world, to confront the world with righteousness, to confront the world with truth, to be a standard of right in a world full of wrong, to create a clash between a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. And here's the thing, since everyone agrees with that, that's fine. Who would disagree with that? Here's the thing, it's easy to agree to big thoughts. Does everyone agree with that? Ask anyone in America if they're a Christian. Ask them, do you believe in God? You will get like an 88 or 90% success rate. You get yes to that question. Because it's easy to just, to just agree or believe to a, a, a mental assent. Do I believe there's a God? Yeah. Is Christianity true? Well, that's, I mean, I'm from the South, of course. Right? That's what my granddaddy believed and that's what I believe. 
Okay. Well, how many kids do you have? Six. From how many women? Five. Okay. There's a disconnect there, but sure. I guess you believe. The Bible has a different definition of what believing means, right? Here's the point. It's easy to agree to a mental assent because it doesn't touch you yet. Right? So when you ask people if they believe in God, you ask people if they're a Christian, you'll get an answer far higher percentage-wise than what is actually true. And this is why the Bible said, hey, faith without works is dead. It's dead, meaning it's not there. It's dead. It's not, it's not faith. Without faith, you can't please God, right? We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. It's, it's imperative that we have faith. <clears throat> and if you did a survey of people in the church, not even in the world, you'd get probably a percentage of 98% people have faith. They're in the church, of course. Why wouldn't they? Then you ask them what they stress about the most. And you start realizing, hmm, what does that faith look like? You're concerned about your retirement fund. You're concerned about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live. Comforts, conveniences, you're stressing out about it so much so your principles get revealed through those stresses. What you then begin to focus your efforts and energy and work on reveals the fact that what you call faith is probably not faith. It's probably a hope. <clears throat> so here's, the, here's the, 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 the rubber meets the road about this restraint. We cast off restraint because we don't have a vision for what we're part of. We don't understand the, the greatness and the supremacy of what we've been invited into and what we've been equipped to be a part of. And what we've been called to, to be a part of. The high honor of that is mind-blowing if you can grasp it. So much so that, that the scriptures say that angels look down into this mystery desiring to see it and understand it. <clears throat> the all of creation sits and watches how the God of creation, the God who is greater than all the galaxies combined, the God who, who with a word spoke creation into existence is hyper focused on this tiny little dot in the middle of his universe that has this eight billion tiny people on it all of which are just lost sheep and all of creation is saying what is he so interested in what is he so focused on i need to look into this i don't fully understand it but god is all about it so what is going on And then we're here on earth, these tiny little ants in the midst of such a vast creation, we can't comprehend it. And we're like, yeah, God's cool and all, but he said, I can't, said, I can't do what I want to do. So forget him. And I say that funny, but literally that's how the majority of the church functions in our life. Here's the thing with restraint. It's not comfortable. You know why? Because restraint, by the grace of God, he restrains us from our wicked tendencies. By grace, he restrains us from our fleshly and natural tendencies to stray away from God and to do the things we want for our own desires that will lead to death. And it's his grace and his mercy and love that he gives us restraint. And he says, here's the restraint, guys. Own this. I'm explaining to you. I'm helping you understand the vision of what you're doing here and why you're doing it. 
it will restrain you because you'll have vision for it. And we're like, we're going to cast it off. We're going to get rid of it. But it's, it's that. It's the statement I've said a bunch, right? It's vision gives pain its purpose, right? And if we understand the purpose of something, we're far more likely to embrace it and do it. And it's that vision that gives the pain we're experiencing, the pain of restraint, its purpose. And then we gladly and even joyfully give ourselves to suffering and hardships because we understand the vision of what it's producing. And that was what Paul was trying to stress in half his letters, guys. And he says it very clearly. He's like, listen, the, the light and temporary suffering that you're experiencing cannot be compared to the weight of glory it's producing in you. And so therefore, he said, therefore, I desire to know Christ and his sufferings. Who would say that? A madman or someone had an eternal vision for what those sufferings produced? Do you understand? Those are your only two options. You're either, you're either sadistic or you have a vision that makes that a small price to pay for what you're getting. It's the pearl of great price. It's the treasure in the field, right? If someone told you there was a treasure in the field worth a billion dollars, wouldn't you do everything you could to come up with the, the purchase price for that field? Everything, nothing would be off the table. You would sell every, your most valued treasures. You'd sell every one of your, your baseball card collections or whatever it is you love. Everything would be gone. Your house of 40 years, sold. That's, that's what we're looking at here. It's this vision that gives pain its purpose. And before we move to the disruption stage, I want to make sure we understand. I want, I want you to tie the easy of, of agreeing to the vision, the big ascent of something, to the contradiction of the way we live when it comes time to disrupt. <clears throat> and a lot of times in, in marriage counseling and parenting counseling, people have come up oftentimes um, and just asked for help, like counsel, uh, with, with their marriage or with their children and raising children. Um, I can see why they think we're such good parents. If you've seen our kids, they're amazing over here, right? Okay, Leon, our little ones. And then the first thing I tell them is like, guys, I wish I had a secret method to tell you, but I don't. I can tell you this. God loves me. (laughs) And despite me and my wife and our bumbling attempts to do it right, God still decided to love our kids and, and call them. And we're like... We don't, we don't know how it happened, right? If I assessed it, if I was mentoring myself as a parent, I'd be like, how do your kids actually enjoy you? <laughs> how is it your kids love Jesus? I don't get it. I've just said, man, it's this. It's desperate prayer constantly, right? Why? Because the supremacy of Christ, it because of the supremacy of Christ he's supreme over all my failings and my shortcomings and stuff and all you can do is hope to God that the good things that God has done in your life will shine through and reveal Christ in some way and that he'll do the rest but this is the one thing I can say to me has been the key and it's a vision for what you want for your kids And from the beginning, I have had a strong vision for what I want my kids to become. And that vision has kept me 
time and time again from doing things that would clearly work against what I want, what the vision says I'm working towards. So just to simply put that in little words, it's like this. There's many times where your kid's growing up, if you're a parent, you know, and if you're not a parent, you've probably seen it many times. Your kids can drive you nuts. Your kids can drive you to the point of frustration where if you're not able to control yourself, you'll just flesh out. You start yelling. You start screaming. You start, like, you just lose control because you've not developed self-control. Like, it's just, that's the truth, right? Like, and in that place, you would say or yell at them or do things that might begin to crush their spirit or to cause them to retreat or uh, to say things that would tear them down instead of build them up. And all you can do after that is apologize, right? But the damage is already done. Your best hope now is that God will provide healing for the damage you did. That is far from ideal. And this goes for marriages as well. I'm just saying for for this idea, you need to have a clear vision that is more is of more value than the immediate desire to flesh out or to vent or to express your frustration or your anger. And so time and time and time and time again, right? Like Melanie and I, we fight. We've had lots of fights. But never in any of those fights have I ever lashed out at her in a way that I knew would really hurt her. I might say, oh my gosh, how could you possibly think that way? That is asinine. But there's a line that never gets crossed because I have lived in prayer for a vision for a godly marriage and a marriage that would be able to be an example to the children for what that looked like. And so when those urges, when you're hurt because someone said something mean to you and you're hurt and your instinct is to hurt back out of self-defense or whatever, the vision kind of just shines thanks to the Holy Spirit in that moment and it restrains you from doing something you'll have to regret. And with children, it's the same way. I said, you want to know how to discipline and love and how to do it in a way that they will then eventually see the value and the fruit of it? You need to be doing it from a place of love. But in order to do that, you have to have a vision for what you want them to become. And in that moment, when that vision is more powerful than your flesh, you say, what I'm about to do, will that, will that hurt all the work we've been doing to bring them to this place? And then it's like, and you just eat it. And then you go and you thank God for his grace in the moment. Well, in the same way, guys, this is what it means to have vision. And that the, the vision gives pain its purpose. When you have a vision for the church, you're willing to allow the restraint of scripture to guide your life and to direct your, your, your efforts and what you're focusing on. Right? So we all claim the church's vision is to change the world. What are you doing to change the world as part of the church? Are you so focused on all the small and insignificant in comparison things going on in your life that you can't do anything with your time and energy except focus on yourself and your things? Your family, your kids, your wife, your provision, your stuff. like All this stuff that Jesus literally says, don't worry about. I hope that was clear, right? Like when we do a self-assessment, the majority of our time and energy is spent building or worrying or establishing or saving for all the things that Jesus literally told his church and his disciples not to worry about. 
And this is why the church isn't changing the world yet, for the most part. This is the disruption part, guys. We have this great commission. It's when, when that vision touches us, it begins to disrupt our lives, and that's where people make their choice. And this is why in so many scriptures, Jesus calls people to account. Do you know, at one point, he said, if you're not willing to come and, and follow me, he says, and in comparison, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, and yes, even your own life, you're not worthy to be my disciple. And he meant it. It wasn't because he was saying, hey, this club's only for, for the cool kids. He was saying, I'm on a mission. And you, you are of no value to the mission if you're so wrapped up in the things of the world and your, your allegiances and your value are uh, at these things that you can't follow me. C.S. Lewis once told this analogy about people who, um, he said, people who pursue God not expecting to actually find him. They're looking for God, but they don't really expect, they don't anticipate what it will be like when they actually find him. And so they just do the church thing and they just do the religious thing and they just, oh yeah, I'm on a spiritual journey and I'm hoping to find God. And then he describes in this beautiful way, he's like, it's like, um, it's like when a rope goes into a dark room and you don't expect anyone to be in there. And the kids, like when you're kids, you're, you always play make-believe and you're like, let's pull on the rope until, you know, the monster pulls back. And, and they're like playing tug of war. And he's like, and when you actually encounter God, when you touch God, it's like you're doing that, but then the rope gets tight. and Someone's pulling back. And you're totally freaked out because you genuinely didn't expect anything to be pulling back. It was an imagination game. Right? And he tells this whole analogy. It's like, this is what happens. And then he said, the scary part is you realize you weren't the one pursuing him. You find out that thing is pursuing you. In a real way. What does that look like? Well... It comes down to this, guys. This is the disruption. The disruption is the Great Commission. I've always understood the Great Commission as a disruption of our lives, as a disruption of the way we live. Why? Because it says this. As you go, make disciples. That's the Great Commission. I know you guys think there's more to it, but there isn't. The rest of that is just how to do it. What to do when you've made a disciple. As you go, make disciples. What do you think the disciples heard in that moment? What did that word mean to them? Good. You thought about it. Good. (laughs) Their context for discipleship was what they had experienced for the last three years. Tip. They understood the word Jesus was saying based on how he had been using that word and how he had been demonstrating that word. He made disciples. He had discipled them. They were told to make disciples. They understood it through that lens. And they combined that with the greater moment where Jesus says, guys, this is why I'm here. Who do you say that I am? Who do they say that I am, right? And then Peter says, you're Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. That is a direct revelation from the Father. And upon that revelation, upon that truth that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I'm going to build my church. And the church is going to change the world, right? He says, not even the gates of hell will prevail against it, right? And from that moment on, if you read in Matthew 
from that point on, 16 on, he is focused on making his disciples ready for that call. His ministry focus shifts. His attention shifts. He loses a whole bunch of people because he says some hard things that they're not willing to follow. And it just becomes him and that focus. So I wanted to just really, the, the last few minutes here is talk about what a disciple is. I think we're better served to understand disciples as apprentices. Right? Have anyone here ever apprenticed anywhere or had an apprentice work under them? So we understand what, what it means. An apprentice, in, by definition, is someone that is willing to come and serve in order to learn how to be like the person they're serving under. That's, that's the idea. I'm going to apprentice under this master mechanic because I want to become a mechanic. And they come and they serve. And Jesus said, go and make disciples. And he said, you are my disciples. There's a famous rabbi saying, a rabbinic saying, that said this, may you be covered in the dust of the feet of your rabbi. Because remember, they didn't have paved roads back then. And the idea was that may you be, it was a blessing. It was a statement of blessing to them. Like, may you be covered by the dust of the feet of your rabbi. In other words, may you follow so closely behind your rabbi as he's walking, as you're, that you're covered in his dust, and that is an honor. Think about that way of thinking, that imagery, that, that thought process. Right? That is the context that Jesus was speaking in, that the disciples were understanding in. And when he said, make disciples, he understood this. They understood this. Make apprentices. And here's the key part, though, about the apprentice. But even more so, we'll just go right to what Jesus is saying. Is this, that they wanted to be like their master. They wanted to be like their master. It wasn't, oh, I guess I need to become like them in order to make money or to become this thing I want to become. No, their goal was to become like their master. Why is this important? Because Sean's talked the last two weeks on this idea of churches being churches that make disciple makers. And we were talking, I said, that is the goal. I said, we're like a couple steps behind, I think. Right? In order to make disciple makers, we have to first be people who make disciples. And the majority of us do not make disciples. That's just the truth. We're just doing an honest assessment. The majority of us do not make disciples. The majority of us don't even know how to make disciples. Because the majority of us have never been discipled. So what do you do with that? You're already at a disadvantage far beyond Jesus' disciples. They at least had the context of the experience of being discipled. You need to throw yourself into this idea of being discipled. You need to be able to sit with God and recognize your lack and say, God, fill it up. He says, come and ask of me and I will generously give to you what you ask of me. And here we are, we're trying to, to... To walk with Christ on the mission of the church so the world can see the supremacy of Christ through us. And we don't even know how to make disciples. We don't even know how. And we don't. It's not even that we don't know how. It's just that we don't. We don't do it. If we were living 
for the purposes of Christ and his kingdom. If we were living from a genuine place of the supremacy of Christ in our lives and desiring that and understanding the great value of what that looked like and the the measly exchange required from you of all that you have to Christ in exchange for him, disciples would be getting made by accident. By accident. From our perspective, from the Holy Spirit's perspective, by providence. Like this is what he wants to do. He's looking for opportunities. And we're not only not allowing him, we actively refuse him because we're not living this way. And this, an apprentice is someone who wants to be like their master. And they, they, we would look to our master and say, what did our master do? Man, he made disciples. How did he do it? Wherever he went, he was looking for opportunities where the father could show himself through him. And he didn't just go around saying like, oh, let's go to the synagogues because that's where you preach. He just went. He went to where people's or he went to households. He went to hillsides. He went to the, the places where the blue collar people worked, the Sea of Galilee, where the fishermen were and where the tax collectors functioned. And he just went to where the normal people went and began to teach, began to interact with them. What does that mean for us? I know this can get lofty, but. It's the idea of coming to a place where making disciples is the norm and expected because that's the Great Commission. Now, so many of us think making disciples is uh, having a Bible class in your basement with two or three people and teaching them how to do Bible classes, (laughs) teaching them how to, I don't know, go through a Bible, whatever. Here's the biblical example of making disciples. It is... Living in such a way that your, your base mode clashes with the world around you. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, whatever God has called you to do, wherever he's placed you, you clash instinctively. What do I mean by that? I was talking to some of our interns about evangelism and, and part of the cultural compartmentalization I think the church does with evangelism, right? Where we, we're like, let's do evangelism. Okay, let's start an evangelism ministry. And let's do our evangelism on Friday nights from 7 to 10 down on a street corner. And it just feels so disjointed to me. What is that? No, your evangelism should be being done 24-7 all the time. And also, if you want to go to a street corner on Friday night from 7 to 10, that's fine too. Do that as well. But your workday should be you as an evangelist. Your lunch breaks should be you as an evangelist. Your fun time should be you as an evangelist. In other words, you should not be able to help but being an instinctive and natural, vibrant evangelist. This is what I mean. When you're out to lunch, say you're on a work job and you're out to lunch at work and you're just sitting at the bar with coworkers and you're ordering food and drinks and they're just talking. Now they're not talking work, they're just hanging out. And they're talking about the things they enjoy and the things that bring them life. And they're talking about things and you just know, you recognize that those are things that used to bring you fulfillment or so you thought. But you have been pulled out of a dark and hopeless place into a place of light. And so now you know in contrast, those things never filled you with hope or fulfillment. You found the true source already. And that knowledge causes you to feel that clash of man, that person needs hope. They're talking about fishing like it's the greatest joy in life. It's clear they have not met the greatest joy in life. 
I'm sitting here knowing the greatest joy in life. And even when I hear that, I feel the clash and I feel the discordantness of it. And I feel the, the emptiness of what they're saying. But I'll just keep enjoying my mashed potatoes. Yeah, fishing's awesome. Fishing's awesome. I love fishing. And we just don't, we don't take the opportunity. We don't take the opportunity to maybe say, oh man, yeah, I love, I remember when fishing used to bring me that type of fulfillment. The point is you're just looking for a strategic way to get them to ask you for why that used to bring it or why that doesn't do it for you. What is it that does it for you? Oh, I'm glad you asked. But the the point is there's there's an instinctive drive within you to do that. You want to do that. You're looking for it, and it's it's instinctive. Until we get to that place, we're not going to make disciples. You know how we'll end up making disciples? We'll post bulletin boards saying we're having a discipleship class, or we'll try to go tell people, hey, Jesus loves you. Oh, really? Who are you? I'm just a guy in the corner that was trying to just throw this phrase out as you pass by. All right, thanks, bro. Appreciate it. One of the most helpful things I've ever heard in this, guys, remember, there's always exceptions to the rule. There's always a, one John the Baptist for 10 million non-John the Baptists, right? A guy where God literally called him to go basically preach on the street corners of the bullhorn. That's, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's not evangelism, biblically speaking, how it's intended to be for the church. But imagine, oh, this was, I heard a phrase that really helped me. You said this, no one is looking for the answer to a question they didn't ask. Right? No one is looking for the answer to a question they didn't ask. That's why Jesus said, I look to see what the Father's doing, and then I move there. And then I strike there, right? You look for a place where people are asking the questions. Or you find a way to live in such a way that they, it provokes the question. It provokes the question, what is different about you? Why do you think so differently? Why do you speak so differently? Why are you... Uh, So opposed, or like, we went to a Christmas party for my company Christmas party. This is one of the things that opened the door for evangelism in my my workplace. We went, the very first Christmas party we went to, my company takes us all to Foxwoods for the night. Friday night to Saturday, no, Saturday night to Sunday. uh, Pays for everything, puts us up in a nice hotel, takes us to restaurants. Well, Foxwoods on a Saturday night is like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It's like... It's like Vegas. It's like Amsterdam. It's just not, it's a place, place where everyone is cast off restraint. And so after we went out to eat, after we did the happy hour, after we did the event, saw the show, we go back to this place. And this place that we were at earlier, after 11 o'clock, turns into practically a strip club. They're not totally naked, but they're dancing and almost naked on, on the tabletops and the stages. And our boss, I've never been to Fox. It was my first time ever there. And all the husbands and wives are lined up in chairs around the back, like, not even around tables anymore. They're just watching the show. And I felt such the clash within me. I was like, this is my first Christmas party with a new company. This guy pays me a lot of money. He's paying a lot for us to be here. Like, the clash was, is this going to be rude if I say I need to leave or what? Like, what do I do? And I felt panicked. Plus, my wife was there. Like, what is, this is like, felt dishonoring. It felt wrong. And so I remember, I just, I was like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just, I'm going to pick up my chair and I'm going to turn it. I'm just going to face all of them. <laughs> I'm going to have my back to all the dancing and I'm just going to face all of them. And that is what I did. And it was the most awkward thing for the first five minutes. They just stared at me off and on. They didn't know what to do. They're like, I'm the new guy. I've been working there for seven months. <clears throat> 
And one of the husbands of the wives that worked there finally caught the guts up. He like, hey, Steve, what are you doing? You're missing the show. And I was like, oh, God, Holy Spirit, give me words. And from that point, I just literally explained my intent with as little judgment as possible. I was like, ah, I don't, I just can't. Like, I was like, listen, I can't, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember what I said 15 years ago exactly, okay? But I remember the gist of it is that I just communicated essentially. It's like, I, I, it just clashes with my conscience. I can't. Like, I was like, besides, I get to look at my wife. She's just far more beautiful. And then my boss's wife said, oh, look at him making all you husbands look so bad. <laughs> right? Like, and she made a joke of it. I laughed. And then I just sat there like, hopefully no more questions in this moment. Right? But from that point forward, it opened the door. I was known as Steve, the guy who doesn't like looking at women. <laughs> But I got to explain why to my coworkers as we worked, and I got to talk about it, and now they, it's been 15 years of this constant stuff. And I just, one of my coworkers had to go in for back surgery in the middle of our client's conference room. I said, hey, this might be awkward. Can I pray for you? Because I believe my God can heal you. And he was like, okay. He's a non-believing Jewish person. And he was like, uh, yeah, sure. I was like, and then I was like, oh, he's not getting it. I was like, no, I mean like now. Can I actually pray for you right now? And is it all right if I touch your back? <laughs> he was like, good job, Steve. Good yeah. job. He was like, all right, Steve. Uh, sure. I have surgery in like two weeks, but you can do this. I was like, well, the goal is that you won't need surgery. That's what I'm saying. Like, let me pray for you. And I did. And I stepped out and he didn't get healed. And he had surgery, and now he's fine. Don't ask me why God does not doesn't heal. I can't tell you that answer. I can just tell you that in the moment, I felt like God was asking me to do it, and I saw a moment to step out and just put it out there, and I did it. My point was this. That, if you're not living from that place, you're not looking for those opportunities, and you're not creating the disruption in your life. It took a lot for me to do that, guys. I'm, it's not, I'm not immune to the... the whatever you'd call about it, the sense, oh, this is going to be awkward. What if God doesn't come through? What if he does this? It's going to do more harm than good. Like, it's just, I've just come to conclusion. I just got to obey what I feel is God, period. And that is what makes disciples. Now, I have been discipled in my life, and I feel that that is a great benefit because it's allowed me to make disciples. And as a result, I've been able to make disciples in my life that are making disciples. Now, let me give this caveat. If I had ever been left to myself to just make disciples like Solo, like Steve, they probably wouldn't be disciples. They'd be disciples of Steve. And at some points, that almost happened, right? Community was able to speak in. Sean was able to speak in. Many times we've had fights over it. Uh, You know, like, Steve, you're making, like, I don't know. They just don't, I don't feel like they're, they're fully in the church. I think they're more fully following Steve. Right? And then I do an assessment and say, I can see that. And since then, like that perspective opening up and realizing the church makes disciples, but we still make disciples. Meaning this, the church makes disciples. That's how healthy disciples are made. A child raised by just a father or just a mother can still grow up and be cool, but they're going to be deficient in the things that a father or mother would have brought. In the same way, when a disciple is raised... They're raised by a church, and hopefully it's by a healthy church that lives in a culture of disciple-making. 
Why would there be a culture of disciple making? Because it's the great commission. It's literally the only thing you have to live for. If you're living for anything else, you're living for the wrong thing. I wish I could stand up here and preach that a million times every week, every week, until we literally lived for one thing and one thing alone to make disciples of Christ. You understand? I don't want you to say, when I say make disciples, I'm not talking about reproduce little use. I'm talking about reproducing followers of Christ. Not just converts. Disciples of Christ. Apprentices of Christ. People who have such an affectionate commitment to Christ because of what Christ has done for them that they say, I must tell others that they can also be where I am. I know we're not all getting this totally, but man, take this, re-listen to it until it drills in and it becomes part of what your, your life is. <clears throat> I had so much more, but I'm going to sum it up because, because. I just really, I really want to make sure we get the point here that as you are going, you make disciples. When you do that, you baptize them into the family of God. You, you, you bring them to a place where they're adopted by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to the point where they carry his name and they're proud of it and they want to do that. And now their life is to do. So when I say, when we see people in the church and we're just like, you don't want to learn more about Christ? You don't want to commit to this uh, intentional training in the word of God and in who he is and the wisdom and nature of Christ? You don't want to do that? You can't do that because that's your laundry night? I'm so confused. We have an opportunity for the world to come to our property where literally the fish are coming to the boat. And we just need to make it as appealing and beautiful as possible. And you're like, that's cool. Someone will do it. That's what I mean, like, it's mission, you're mission-driven by this. And here's, without vision, you're going to cast off restraint, and you're going to live for your own things. And you're going to value your own things of higher value than the things of the mission of the church. Or you'll have some, or you have woundings. You have some reason to think, oh, that's their thing. They're the ones that benefit from that, or whatever. Like, they're doing that. God's given me things to do. Well, fine. Then do them then get busy doing them. I don't care what you're doing, where you're doing it, as long as you're doing that and not your own thing. As long as you're not living for your own thing. How does this culture building happen? This is where I wanted to wrap it up. Jesus said some crazy things. He really did. But here's where, to me, it starts. We cannot have a culture of disciple-making without this one truth being prevalent and taking root in our hearts and transforming us. And that's this. The church is literally a family. Literally. If you see it as anything else, you, you have a slightly incorrect perspective on what it is. It is clear throughout the word that it is a family. You know, Jesus at one point was preaching to the crowds and his mother and brother came and they were trying to get to him but the crowds were too big so they couldn't reach him and a messenger came and said hey Jesus your mother and your brothers are here 
They want to talk to you. And Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Now, just stop right there for a second. This wasn't in independent America where this was said. This was in ancient Israel, a patriarchal slash matriarchal culture of honor. Where Jesus, who wrote the words to honor your mother and your father so that you will live a long life and prosper, is sitting there. And in their minds, says something that was very dishonoring. But we have the benefit of knowing Christ was not being dishonoring. He was trying to shift culture. He was trying to shift idolatry in the hearts of people. And he said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he pointed to his disciples. Try to put yourself there, what that would have been like. Try to be, if you're a mother right now, try to put yourself in that place. You're a brother, you're a family member, and Jesus is there, and he's your son, he's your brother, and he says to an entire crowd that's so big, you can't get to him, and he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he points to his disciples, and he said, these are my mothers, these are my brothers, those who do my will. You don't think you're going to experience pain and hurt as the family member in that moment? You don't think Mary had to wrestle with that statement or concept that his brothers had to wrestle with that? How awkward it must have been for the disciples to be pointed at by Jesus and say, we're his mother and his brothers. Like, he says, those who do my will, they are my mother and my brothers. He was shifting the idea of of the importance of allegiance, where your allegiance lied in a culture that allegiance was family first and everything second. Jesus was saying me first and everything else second. And when that rubber hits the road, it's going to cause offense. It's going to cause hardships. It's going to cause suffering. But you want to know what Jesus said? He said, don't you dare think I came to bring peace to this earth I didn't I came to bring a sword and said and this sword is going to set father against sons and mothers against daughters and brothers against brothers and sisters against sisters why would he say that again he was shifting culture and challenging allegiance challenging loyalties challenging focuses challenging motivations challenging everything we held dear and knew and then he said I have come and I want to introduce you to the father do you know in the old testament he was not known as father Jesus came and introduced God as the father and said I have come to show you your true family your true father, your supernatural family. Your family hopefully loves the Lord and now you and your natural family can be part of that supernatural family. But if your natural family is not part of that family, your your allegiances lie with Christ and his family. And if it doesn't, you're not worthy to be his disciple, never mind be someone who makes disciples. Now that's crazy hard statements, right? But this is why I called it the disruption. It disrupts us at the core of who we are. 
It disrupts us at the core. You are born and raised and built around the concept of family. And in most cultures, you are born and raised around the concept of family first. And Christ said, that is true. Everything you've learned is 100% true. But your allegiance is to a different family than the one you thought. Love your family. Love them to death and introduce them to Jesus and bring them into the kingdom and the family of God. But your allegiance is to Christ and his family. And here we are trying to shift the culture to do that. And it can be messy. And it's going to be messy. And it's going to be awkward because you know how awkward it is to try to begin to show family level affection to people that you're getting to know? That can get messy. What if some people don't like hugs, but your family's a big hugger and you want to greet them and make them feel like they're part of the family and you give them a hug and they're like, whoa, bro. Little things on just screen practice is rubber meets the road, the practical things. Jesus said that they will know that you are mine by your love one for another. And that's where we need to get to. So we could carry on this message because there's so much more. I want to talk about the church as an incubator for the disciple for disciples and disciple making like that's its purpose that's its function it's an incubator but for today this is what i want the main the main thing to resonate as we go after god here for a few minutes is is this idea that the vision of the church is to change the world and you change the world by making disciples aka apprentices who want to be like their master and the Bible says this, the church is used to do that, okay? So I don't want a bunch of lone rangers thinking, oh, everyone goes into their prayer closet and tries to become a disciple of Christ. That's not his method. That's not how he's done it. You can read the scriptures. He told the disciples to go make disciples. Paul told Timothy to find faithful men that they could pass on this truth to the same way Paul did to Timothy. Paul begins to call Timothy his beloved son. He says, you're my one true son, in the, my true son in the faith. He was not his dad. Timothy had a dad, a Greek man. Paul refers to him as his son. Not only that, his faithful son, then his true son. That type of dynamic happens when we realize this is the family of God. There's a story in the Old Testament with Isaiah, Elijah and Elisha. We're at the end, right? Elijah says, Elisha, what do you want from me? I got to go. God was about to take him. And Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. And the American church has butchered that as if Elisha was saying, I want twice as much of your power. Elisha could care less about his power. Elisha wanted to carry on the work of his spiritual father, Elijah. That was his request. In that culture, the firstborn son of every family got a double portion of the father's stuff so that he could carry on the family name. And Elisha says, out of everything I want, Elijah, I want a double portion from you. And Elijah says, I can't promise that to you that's up to God and when Elijah gets taken up do you know what Elisha cries out in his instinct in the emotional uh, upheaval of watching the supernatural event happen right before your eyes but also knowing it's the last time you'll ever see the man you've come to know as a father in your life his instinctive cry was Abba Abba that's the affectionate form of dad in Hebrew it was not father father like like a, a religious thing he was crying out dad dad to a man that was not his dad i'm just saying these are some of the truths we see how do we get there by having a culture for the vision of what that looks like we have to have a church that is family 
but we have a vision for this family being called to change the world. So, what do we do to get this vision? I can tell you, we ask for it from a God who promises to give it to us generously. So let's do that right now. Let's take these couple minutes here, right? Because guys, we have a lot of work to do to change the world. I don't know if you've noticed this, you've read the news, you looked out the window, you've met some people. There's some work to do. The world has to change. It has to. There's another quote too. I, I, don't, I'm just going to preach till two if you're okay with that. No, we're going to stand up, we're going to pray, but I just want you, there was this, uh, man, I can't remember her name. She's an older woman, she's an awesome woman, but she said, whoever said that the, the world can't be changed by a small group of people united under one purpose, she said, as a matter of fact, it's only ever been changed by such a group. So let's let the church be that group. But it has to start in your heart. You want to make disciples? Be a disciple. You've never been discipled? Ask the Lord to begin that process and find a way to then start getting discipled. Right? And you can be in the sandwich. You can be being discipled and making disciples. That's the point. But if you are not, if you find that that's a deficit in your life, you need to be on your knees saying, God, help me here. What do I do? How do I spend my life for this purpose? Help me to stop stressing and worrying about all the things that don't matter but feel so pressing and imminent. And let me focus on the things that you say matter and spend my life for this because I'm going to be here today and gone tomorrow. So let's just begin to pray right now, guys. Stand up if you can. Like, let's just, I know, because I preach for a long time, so your legs are kind of ap- ap- atrophying, right? Stand up and just... Put your whole body into it. Pretend like you're in Israel at the wall and you're praying with everything in you, your mind, body, spirit, soul, everything. And you're saying, God, let this vision be instilled in the core of who I am so that I live from this place, so that I breathe from this place, so that I think from this place, so that I process from this place, so that I make decisions from this place. God, give us eyes to see the vision you've put before us, the supremacy of who you are and what's worth living for, God, that you would be at the forefront. Oh, the praises of a thousand generations.